Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 7. We're back. Well, we're almost back. Unfortunately, Paul can't be with us today, but he will be with us for our next regular episode when we'll be discussing Conan Doyle's despicable pirate captain, the fiendish Sharky. In the meantime, I'm pleased to bring you the first of our interview shows, in which we'll be speaking to special guests about different aspects of Conan Doyle's life and work and things happening in the Doylean world. First up, it's Conan Doyle and Sport, and I was delighted to speak earlier today to the co-editor of Canadian Homes, Mark Alberstadt. Mark Alberstadt is a Sherlockian living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and a member of the Baker Street Irregulars with the investiture, appropriately enough, of Halifax. His Sherlockian journey began in the 1980s, when he formed a Scion Society, which is still going today. In 2011, with his wife Joanne, he became co-editor of Canadian Homes, the journal of the bootmakers of Toronto. When he isn't compiling the next edition of the journal, he can be found researching and writing his favourite topic, Conan Doyle and Sport, which we'll be delving into today. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Always happy to talk about uh, Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, sports, whatever you want to talk. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, we'll get through all of those, I think. But before we get started, tell us how you came to be involved in the Sherlockian and Doylean world. It started, of course, with uh, where I'm I'm 55 now, so I I didn't start with uh, uh, Sherlock or uh, the Brett series. Uh, I started reading uh, from my father's Doubleday set and enjoyed the stories. Uh, And then a few years later, I, I found... A used version of DeWall's world bibliography of uh, Sherlock Holmes and when I was flipping through it I found all a listing of all these Sherlock Holmes societies around the world mm. uh, and of course I found the one in Toronto of course I, I looked frequently for uh, locals or, or close <laughs> people and joined them and they have a, a journal that you mentioned Canadian Homes and when I found that list of of clubs, I started writing to them basically in the order that they were listed. And early on, I came across the Brothers Three Moriarty uh, because it was alphabetical. When I wrote to them, uh, a man by the name of John Bennett Shaw wrote back, mm. who is now, uh, we all know, uh, you know, t- kind of the Johnny Appleseed of, Sherlock- of American Sherlockians. <laughs> he would encourage people in- incredibly so. And he and I had. Uh, correspondence for years 
and every every couple months, every few months, he would send me a package in the mail, and it would be a manila envelope just stuffed full of extra clippings that he's received because he would he would have stuff from all over the world coming into him, and he'd take some extras or doubles or triplicates that he had and put them in an envelope, put a little note in it with me and send it to me. And through our correspondence, he knew I was a sports fan. Uh, I, mm. my, my father was a sports fan, grew up watching sports. John knew it. Uh, and one of the things he encouraged me to do was start my own local club, which he was famous for, and I did. And uh, the club's still going today. Uh, I started as a teenager. And uh, years and years, decades later, it's still going. We, we're called the Spence Monroe's after Colonel Spence Monroe from the stories who was said to have moved to Halifax. Hmm. So we couldn't pass by such a, an obvious reference. <laughs> and one, one of the things that John, John sent me uh, one day was um, a pullout of uh, a Sports Illustrated article uh, from 1963, so before I was born even, it was Barry Gould's article, Sherlock Holmes Sportsman, ah. from Sports Illustrated. And he said, you like sports, you might find this interesting. And he encouraged me to research and write on that topic. Um, later, I was a sports writer for a daily newspaper for a little while, and my, my wife was a big sports fan, and she was a writer for daily another daily newspaper for, mm. for years. So writing about sports uh, came natural. And why not uh, look at Sherlock Holmes and sports and Conan Doyle and sports? And when you start scratching that surface, you can find it's a, a fairly deep vein that really hasn't been mined at all mm. uh, or very little. Conan Doyle was in, involved in sports almost a couple times a week yeah. for his entire life. Yeah, absolutely. He, every weekend he was playing for one cricket team or another. When he was uh, starting out his medical practice, uh, he was a, uh, a goalie in, in in what I'd call soccer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and he played under A.C. Smith. Yes. Uh, because it wasn't the sport that you'd want your doctor playing in those days. Yeah. And I think that that speaks some of it to yeah. his, his interest in sports. Uh, when he was building his own homes, he would, he built a, um, a billiards room. Yeah. Cool. And he was a, a very good billiards player as well. Yeah. It's amazing how much of a part sports play in his life and work. Uh, I was lucky enough to look at some of his notebooks in the British library recently and I was struck by the fact that at the end of each year, he keeps a tab of three things. Um, what he wrote that year, what he earned, and his uh, his cricket scores. Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. He, he was a very, very good cricketer. And, and he played for, for decades. Mm. Uh, when, he, when he finished hotter and went on to Stonyhurst, they played Stonyhurst cricket. Just by calling it that, you know it's not your average cricket. Yeah. It's it, this is not cricket, as they would say. Uh, it was it was its own kind of brand of cricket, and the lower end of the bat was kind of oval shaped, so it, it wasn't kind of like our the, the cricket bat you'd think now. Yeah, uh, it was curved, 
and on and concave on the striking side. That's almost like a scoop. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the bowling was also strange in 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 Stonyhurst, where it was all underarm. Yeah. And of of course, and it was they were basically rolling it along the ground, and which of course wouldn't be allowed today. But in this super odd, leave it to Stonyhurst. Uh, <laughs> They that's how they played. Um, now, un- unfortunately, Doyle didn't play a lot of Stonyhurst cricket. Kind of during his second year there, they brought in what they called London cricket. So you know, it's a little more more traditional cricket. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he didn't get to play on the first eleven for Stonyhurst. Um, he was certainly getting better as you know. If you look back in the Stonyhurst archives. Uh, you can find him, and he was getting better as the time went on, but he never quite quite cracked the uh, the top league no. there. No. Um, but you know, it, it did set him up for a, not quite a lifetime, but decades more mm. of cricket. And he played for the school alumni, I think. Um, the the Wanderers was it? The Wanderers, yeah. The uh, the which is which is a funny name um, because they they would. <laughs> often you know form play uh sometimes the the school team um and he played on a lot of teams there there was teams that he'd play on just for a weekend um and actually his honeymoon was (laughs) his his first honeymoon was uh based around uh, a cricket trip to ireland (laughs) <laughs> That's some serious commitment to cricket. Well, and and, and his his wife's commitment as well. We we yeah. don't, you know, she, uh, I don't know if we have her uh, diary for the for the honeymoon. Uh, maybe it's best that we don't. Um, and, and that was that was with the Wanderers that honeymoon, uh, and then of course he also played with the Alaka Berries. Mm. Uh, the. Uh, <laughs> the super strange team that J.M. Barry created. Uh, J.M. Barry, of course, being uh, the author of Peter Pan and and others, uh, other books. Um, and it was it was it was a basically it was made up of some of the best literary names at the time. Yeah. Although far, not the best cricketers. No, it doesn't sound like it. Actually, Alexis Barquin at the Conan Doyle Encyclopedia has just produced a brilliant infographic that provides an overview of Conan Doyle's entire cricketing career and reveals just how much cricket he played. Well, when, when he was interviewed uh, at one point early on, he had, he had just moved into a new house, and he said one of the reasons he, he liked that location was because there was a uh, cricket pitch, yeah. um, <laughs> basically across the road. Uh, you know, some of us might say, oh, we really like the grounds or, or the backyard is big enough for the family. Uh, for him, he said, oh, yeah, there's a cricket pitch across the road. I, I don't know if, <laughs> if that was the only reason he bought this house, but it was, it was a consideration. And I'm sure if you talk to anybody else on that J.M. Barry team, you know, Kipling or Wells mm. or P.G. Woodhouse or Jerome K. Jerome, they wouldn't even know where the closest cricket pitch was, no, most no. of them. And there he is buying a, a place near a cricket pitch. You, uh, and, think... and, of course, he, he, he did um, play against um, the doctor, uh, Grace. Yeah. And uh, that, was, that was certainly a, a big thrill for him. 
Absolutely. And uh, he wrote a, a poem about it, A Reminiscence of Cricket, in uh, 1922, uh, the opening lines of which are, Once in my heyday of cricket, a day I will ever recall, I captured that glorious wicket, the greatest, the grandest of all. So uh, even by 1922, he'd been dining out on the event for, for 20 years. I mean, it was clearly a great moment for him. I am sure it was. It would be, you know, pitching to Babe Ruth or, or mm. you know, skating with uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, although Grace was 12, 15 years older than him yeah. at the time. Uh, and Grace wasn't in, in his prime, <laughs> although Doyle, Doyle may have been. So it, it, I, I'm not sure it was a, a fair matchup. But even even at that, Grace was still... A dominant force yeah and when anybody in cricket had to face him you know you'd face the history you'd face the legend and yet cricket doesn't really appear in his fiction there's the story of spadiques or spedigues dropper in the 1920s but but otherwise uh, only a few references here and there cricket really isn't mentioned very much at all in the sherlock holmes stories and one of my my little pet theories is that every time he wrote Baker Street, he may have thought of Lord's Cricket Ground. Yes. The original uh, manuscript or notes for Studying Scarlet says uh, that the location was going to be Upper Baker Street when Baker Street had such a, a designation. Mm. And that upper end is very close to Lord's cr Cricket Ground. And if you were a cricket-loving English person, and you look at a map of London, and you're thinking, where am I going to place my my character? You're going to look just at Lord's Cricket Ground. It's yeah, you know, it's just one of those things you'd you'd naturally be your eye would go to, and what is right there, but Baker Street. Yes, I th I think you're onto something there. Um, I wonder what your take is on the off-quoted theory that Conan Doyle hit on the name Sherlock by combining the names of two Nottinghamshire cricketers, Sherwin and Shacklock, uh, the latter of whom had a, had a brother called Mycroft. Yeah, the, well, we, we all like to try to find the origin of any of the stories and, mm. and the names. Some of the names are, are rather odd. The thought that he put together the, the two cricketers mm. for the name of Sherlock, I think it's, it's as good as any. And where it brings in his love of cricket, I think it's better than some. Another sport that gets referenced uh, a fair few times in Conan Doyle's fiction, and in the Sherlock Holmes stories in particular, is rugby. But um, it's a sport you don't think he, he played. He he doesn't seem to have. There's not a lot of evidence. Uh, certainly there's a lot of evidence for other sports. Boxing, as we mentioned, cricket, uh, he even tried his hand at baseball but rugby oddly enough isn't and, and if you think of Conan Doyle in his size mm. he looks like a solid rugby player he does you know you wouldn't want to try to tackle him high up that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> take him off at the knees or something to slow him down if he if he was running down the field um, but you know he, he did state uh, I'm not sure where it was he, he thought boxing was the finest single man sport mm. and he thought rugby was the best collective sport of course the 
the Sherlock Holmes story, The Missing Three Quarters, is based around a rugby player mm. um, who was who was a, a very very good rugby player too. Not not run of the mill somebody who who played a little uh, at Cambridge. He, he played for Blackheath. He played for five internationals. So if you're playing at that rank, you're you're a good player. <laughs> and uh, Godfrey Staunton, the player in question. Uh, was such an outstanding person. Yes. And I think there's there's a bit of Doyle in Godfrey Staunton, you know, and, and at the same time, Watson was said to have been a, a good uh, rugby player in The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. Mm. Um, and he also played for Blackheath. Watson as a rugby player? Yeah, well... We'll take it. Uh, yes, I think so. And Conan Doyle's other great narrator, um, Edward Malone, in The Lost World and other novels, um, he's a rugby international. And there's a, an implicit connection made between uh, strength of character and moral fortitude and, and manly, manliness that is uh, signified by both Watson and Malone being rugby players. Uh, and, and Roxton describes rugby as the manliest game we have left, as though all the manly sports are disappearing. Very much so. And, and of course, uh, Lord John Roxton uh, recognized Malone when they first met. He said, oh, no, not the the, the Malone who, who, who played for, um, I think, who played against Ireland for England, or maybe for I, Ireland. Ireland for, yeah, for, for Ireland. I for think. Ireland. Yeah. And I think if, now you might remember, isn't that the one where he says he, he had his cap? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, so he 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 played. He played well, and yeah, just one more narrator who was who was playing rugby, and while Conan Doyle doesn't seem to have played very much, but he obviously enjoyed enough to see some of his his more manly characters in this. And Conan Doyle does see sports as part of the British identity. One thing we haven't touched on is Conan Doyle's. Um, involvement in the Olympics. Mm. Uh, I've just been doing some research in the past few few weeks uh, for an article for Canadian Homes on Conan Doyle and the 1912 to 1916 uh, stretch for the for the Olympics. Um, the previous Olympics was in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, England did very well. They were at the top of the podium, top of the, all the lists. And then the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm, England did terribly. The, the Americans came on strong, and of course, um, the host country did well, as, as they usually do when they're hosts. Before the Olympics were even over, there were press articles saying, just pulling people pulling their hair out, that you know, the once proud and strong and capable British athlete can't do anything at the Olympics anymore. And Conan Doyle took up the struggle, as, as as he picked up his pen and wrote letters to the editor as as he was wont to and uh, Lord Northcliffe who was uh, the newspaper magnate and he he encouraged Conan Doyle to set up an executive committee uh, kind of parallel to the true uh, British Olympic Committee to raise funds and hire some good coaches and prepare a team for the next Olympics. And he did form a committee. He he thought ten thousand dollars, ten thousand pounds, would be sufficient to at least get them started. And mm. it was going to be a public appeal because he wanted the British public behind this. 
Yes. And he was away on a trip, and the committee met, and they had agreed to 10,000 pounds previous. He's away. Then all of a sudden, he's seeing all this uh, newspaper reports that the committee has asked for 100,000 uh, 100, pounds from... <laughs> <laughs> from the public, which was a huge sum Massive. in 1912, 1913. And there was a lot of backlash, and eventually they only raised seven. <laughs> so far short of their 100,000 and even short of their original amount. But part of the reason it fell short was there was such a backlash when, when the committee asked for 100,000. Oh, yeah, I could imagine. And and they, they also didn't, they, they said it smacked of professionalism and... That was the last thing the British wanted their sports men and women to uh, to be as professionals, opposed to a lot of the Americans and other um, countries who had sports specialists. The British team that was sent to Stockholm, you know, there there would be some you know rugby players, and they'd say, "Oh, you're a rugby player. You're good at running. You'll go in. <laughs> you'll go in some of the field events." And oh, you're you're a good size. You can throw the discus. So opposed to some of the other teams who had real specialists, yeah, and, and that made the difference. And some of the the press said, "Well, if we're going to be professionals, we don't want any part of it." It's really interesting you bring out the point about professionalism because Conan Doyle often wrote about the virtues of amateur sport. He seems innately opposed to the idea that the team with the biggest purse gets the best players which, aside from issues of fairness, also undermined um, uh, the connection between sport and place, which he, he writes about, uh, you know, the idea that you play for your local side. Uh, and, uh, of course, Sherlock Holmes describes amateur sport as the best and finest thing in England. He, he, he does describe it that way, and uh, a- absolutely. I had, I had interviewed Dame Jean Conan Doyle mm. uh, years ago, and I had written to her earlier and said I wanted to talk to her about her father and uh, sports. And the, the letter I got back was, sure, I'm willing to talk about that, that topic. And you, I forget the, the, the exact phrase she used, but it was, it was clear that if I had written her and said, I want to talk about Sherlock Holmes, yeah. <laughs> she may have been busy that day. So she set up a time, and we had a, a lovely conversation about her father in sports. She, she would remember, you know, the, the very long skis that were in the house, that was cluttering <laughs> up the house, and, 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 and cricket bats and stuff around the house. But one thing she wanted me to know and wanted me to make clear is that her father was proud of being an all-rounder. He wasn't a specialist in in any one sport. We we see him as being very good at cricket, and he played a lot of cricket, so he, he did become very good. But he put his hand at so much mm. that she wanted us to remember him as a good all-rounder. And of course, if you're a good all-rounder, you're far from a professional. And it's wonderful to have the uh, uh, perspective of Dame Jean. Did she remember anything about her father and, uh, and cycling, I wonder? Because he didn't... Um... He didn't cycle competitively, but he was a very keen cyclist. He was. She didn't mention it, um, but he was certainly 
an avid cyclist. There's no no question there. And of course, he, he wrote it into some of his uh, his fiction. Uh, in uh, 1892, in a Strand magazine, uh, obviously 1892, Conan Doyle is just starting to hit his stride as a writer. Mm. Uh, the Strand sent Harry Howe uh, to the Doyle's new home to do a profile of their latest literary lion. And one of the pictures that goes along with it is a picture of Conan Doyle and his wife Louisa on a, a tandem tricycle. But, you know, it, it shows when, when a photographer showed up and said, we're, we're doing a profile of you. He got into his, his cycling duds and says, take a picture of us on our, on our, our new tricycle. Yeah. And, and that speaks to it. Uh, and then, of course, he wrote it into um, uh, several, several stories as well. And, of course, the, uh, the Adventure of the Priory School, where there's bicyclists, and the Adventure of the Solitary Cyclists. Mm. And the big cycling craze was on at the time. And there, there's no question, he was an avid cycler. He, mm. he wrote to his mother that he had done a 30-mile round trip. Um, and he wrote in 1896, um, when the spirits are low, when the day appears dark, when work becomes monotonous, when hope hardly seems worth having, just mount a bicycle and go for a spin down the road. Yes, and that speaks to his interest in sport for physical and uh, mental well-being. Uh, and it's notable, I think, that around the time of the Olympic Committee you mentioned, Conan Doyle was preoccupied with thoughts of the empire and wrote a fair bit about boys' education and sports as a way of reversing what he perceived to be a decline in fortunes. And and sadly, it, it wasn't. It, mm. You know, he it, it continued, um, but he does does see sports as as part of Britain. He saw sports as, as being part of the ideal person. Yeah. Uh, and he also um, worked out. He, he had a, a fitness regimen with Eugene Sandow, who was uh, oh, yes. a well-known Victorian, and he had a gym. And Conan Doyle uh, was a member. The two of them knew, knew each other. In fact, uh, Conan Doyle wrote a uh, preface or an introduction to Sandow's uh, book. It shows that it wasn't just a sport; it was all sports, mm. and it was it was for physical culture, and and its own mental well-being. He was working out with uh, with dumbbells. He was he was on the cricket pitch. He was he was skiing mm. before skiing was was active. Um, it was also something he invested in, of course, too. When he invested in the auto wheel, the auto wheel basically turned your pedal bike into some kind of very loud motorcycle early motorcycle this was about 1909 when he invested he was he was a third third or two-thirds owner of this company that that built the auto wheel uh and they they built thousands of them unfortunately within 10 years the company was bankrupt and conan doyle had lost his money as he seems to have done yeah. often with, with his investments. Uh, he, was, he was a very talented writer, but a terrible investor. Uh, and, and the auto wheel is uh, an odd little side sidecar, so to speak, of 
of his interest in sports and there are still auto wheels around if you go on youtube and, and search it out you'll see people have found these rusted old auto wheels and have them running up and down the country lanes yeah the auto wheel it's a slightly odd investment uh, as you know if he'd invested in anything you think you kind of think it would have been the automobile because he had such a love of cars um, he cer- he certainly did well, he he was a wealthy man, mm. no question, and he was an early advocate of of automobiles in England. His he, his groom, uh, because he had horses too, uh, was was first trained to drive a car, and they went and got the car that he first bought his first car, and instead of having the groom drive it home, who was trained, Conan Doyle thought, up. Oh, I'll drive it home. <laughs> so there was, I'm sure it was a, uh, a loud, nerve-wracking uh, trip home. His sons certainly mm. picked up that, and they raced cars, um, all kinds of cars, uh, for many years. And no, no question, they got the love of competition, the love of sports, and the money from, uh, from their father. And there was one point where uh, we almost uh, lost our favorite author when he was coming back from a golf match. Uh, For whatever reason, the car got out of control and it turned over and his passenger was able to get out, but it pinned him uh, upside down. The car Mm -hmm. was upside down and it was across his back. He uh, So he could have very easily had a very, very serious injury. Enough people came over, they heard the crash, and they were able to pull it off him. He, uh, at one point, he attributes uh, his ability to survive that crash and to hold, basically to hold, hold a, an early car on his back, um, <laughs> to his work with Sandow oh, and, his strength, and his strength training. So it all it all comes around to uh, mm. the man himself and and his 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 love of physical fitness mm. may have may have saved him and may have given us Conan Doyle and all of his writing uh, some more years. And he fictionalized that incident, didn't he, in a, a story called uh, How It Happened? How it happened exactly? Uh, yeah, he did fictionalize it. the The outcome was certainly different. Yeah. Uh, at, at the end of How It Happened, he, he's standing there looking at the crash and uh, he realized that he is a spirit uh, and he didn't quite uh, quite make it out the way, the way it truly <laughs> happened uh, but it was all good because it was during his spiritualism uh, time and um, it's a fun story uh, you know a lot of Conan Doyle's other works are fun, fun to read mm. uh, it also reminds us that he wrote so much more mm. and his love of sports does show up in other other writings. One of the, uh, the the cars that his his sons owned for a while was the original Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, which was a very famous car and, and still is if, if you know of the movies and whatnot. Um, but that also speaks to the kind of money they had, mm. uh, the, the, and they would they would own uh, and resell and race and resell other cars, and that was one of the one of the cars they owned. Uh, every once in a while, uh, one of their cars, one of their very fancy cars, will come up for auction, and it'll often mention that the Conan Doyle brothers owned this or that car for. It was usually a fairly short time. Uh, they didn't keep any of their cars very long. I don't think um, 
either of their wives were very happy with them racing the cars for for obvious just safety reasons and they didn't race a lot and they weren't particularly good at it either i i I just don't think they were they were great drivers there were there were some talented drivers at the time that they would be against and these guys had the money in the cars but it takes it takes more than that Absolutely. And their experience of racing was uh, a far cry from Conan Doyle's own experience of car racing. Uh, Back in episode four, we touched on the Prince Henry Tour, which was an altogether more sedate affair. Yeah, the the Prince Henry Tour is an interesting, interesting uh, little sidelight of Conan Doyle and and the automobile. And um, he didn't win that race either, Uh, (laughs) but he did all right. He did all right. And he took his wife with him, I think. He did. There was three, I, I believe, three people in the car. There was always a, a British person and a German person. And and if if, if Conan Doyle was driving, the the German was the um, basically from from the other side, yes. uh, ma- making sure they they went all on the right routes and kept it all above board. And each, each team was like that. Mm. And I, I believe you're you're right. His wife was with them. Uh, and it was it was a time when he was wealthy, he was well-known. He could do that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Absolutely. Why not? In fact, um, Marcus Geiser got in touch with us after episode four to point out that Conan Doyle's opponent in that race, uh, Graf Karma, was a, a, a likely model for von Bork in His Last Bow. Um a sport that you mentioned right at the beginning that I'd like to loop back to now as we near the end of the podcast is uh, is baseball, because I didn't think Conan Doyle had any particular connection to baseball, but you've uncovered quite a lot. That was a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, I wrote about it in uh, the Baker Street Journal in uh, 2016, and of course it was in the summer, summer edition, which was... Uh, the appropriate <laughs> edition for them to put it in. When when I started researching it, I thought, you know, it'd be a short article, let's face it. Uh, and then I found a lot of information. Mm. And Conan Doyle really enjoyed baseball. Now, I'm, I'm a happy Canadian to be able to say that one of the few times that Conan Doyle actually stood up, went to bat was in Canada. Yeah. It was in 1914 in Jasper, Alberta. And they they obviously knew that the famous author Conan Doyle was there and they were having a, a baseball match between a couple local local teams and they asked Conan Doyle if he would uh, come in and, and hit the hit the initial pitch. So uh, he wrote that the uh, the pitcher fortunately was merciful, and <laughs> and the ball came in swift but true. I steadied myself by trying to imagine that it was a cricket bat, which I held in my grasp, <laughs> and that it was a full toss, which which asked me to be hit over the ropes. Fortunately, I got it fairly in the middle, and it went on its point pointed way, whizzing past the ear of a photographer who expected me just to pat it in. I should not care to have to duplicate that performance. <laughs> so again, you know, he he had never picked up a baseball bat that we that we knew of, um, and yet they asked him, "Why not?" Mm. He he did make a, a few trips to North America, of course, and 
1923, Conan Doyle was in America, in Canada on Canada Day, and uh, he, he witnessed uh, an international baseball match uh, between Winnipeg and Minneapolis in the morning. He was also in New York in 1914, so you know a fair bit bef- mm. uh, before this this Canada Day match or Dominion Day, and he uh, he goes to the Polo Grounds. The, which in New York is is the famous baseball uh, baseball field, and he, he takes in a game and in, enjoys it immensely. He he wrote about baseball a fair bit, um, and he says uh, baseball is a novel game. I enjoy watching it immensely. I know baseball is the game England needs. Mm. For years, there has been a demand for a young man's game, and baseball will fit the want. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It you wouldn't think he would be so fond of baseball. He he loved all sports, but to think that this is the game that England needs. And he did write to the British newspapers suggesting that there should be a professional association to promote baseball in the UK. But the thing that I was amazed by in your article, because I, I'd never have put these words in Conan Doyle's mouth. Uh, was something he wrote in 1922 or 23. And he said, I have all the prejudices of an old cricketer, and yet I cannot get away from the fact that baseball is the better game. Indeed, he, he wrote that in uh, his book, Our Second American Adventure, basically is ah. one of his uh, memoirs. And yeah, uh, he, he writes, you know, it's, it's on the page, it's recorded. One of the reasons I think he, he preferred it is because it's it's done and dusted within a couple hours. Absolutely. He also found that the outfielders in baseball were as good or better than a lot of the uh, the people in in the field for cricket. He was he was amazed at how how good they were in the field and how strong they were in and accurate they were in throwing the ball in from the outfield. He enjoyed it. Mm. Plain and simple. He mm. thought it was a good game. He he did think baseball would catch on in England, and uh, unfortunately, as we all know today, there there are baseball teams in England. But I think he'd be disappointed. Yeah, I think could, so. you know. Thankfully, he didn't invest in it like he did the auto wheel. But I, th- <laughs> I think he'd still be disappointed just as much. Brilliant. So we've covered um, a huge amount of ground here, and only really scratched the surface. So uh, what's next for you? I mean, we haven't really talked about soccer or skiing, boxing, billiards, golf, <laughs> ballooning. Ballooning. You went up. You went up in a balloon once. Uh, we, I guess that's considered a pastime more than a sport. Um, <laughs> and, and his his involvement with uh, Sandow that I mentioned, mm. Eugene Sandow. Um, I, I, I've started to look into that a little more. There's definitely some some very good biographies about him. And Conan Doyle is almost always mentioned as one of the the proponents of the Sandow method, uh, and it's I think all the Sherlockians listening to this podcast uh, enjoy the writings, mm. but they also enjoy knowing about the author himself. Mm. And you can read the various biographies, and there's there's plenty of them, uh, and you know there there's some very good ones, of course, too. Uh, all the biographies touch on his love of sports, but they don't really look at Conan Doyle sportsman. No. And this is a, 
a small, very small little aspect of our our love for all things Sherlockian that that I've I found that if if you really want to know about Conan Doyle, you have to understand that he was a great athlete mm-hmm. and a great all rounder, as as Dame Jean wanted us to to remind uh, everybody that uh, he tried everything. He was an all-rounder. He was a great athlete and an all-rounder. Well, I think that's a great point to end us on. So it only remains for me to thank you, Mark, for coming on the podcast and sharing with us your passion and enthusiasm for Conan Doyle in sport. I think it gives a great insight into the person behind the pen, as it were. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we're all eager to read your next article on the subject. Well, thanks. It, it's been fun. I hope our uh, listeners uh, in, enjoy Conan Doyle and sports and, and can do some back research into my uh, previous articles and look forward to, to new ones. There's, there's lots more to be written on this, this subject. Great. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your listening. So that wraps up this interview episode. We hope you enjoyed this interlude. Paul and I will be back as soon as we can reconvene in the studio. So until then, it's goodbye from me and stay safe and well. Goodbye.